Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent, author of the Banneker Bones Trilogy. Uh, and you can get the first book in that trilogy, Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, as an audiobook, a paperback, or the ebook is free. Free to download whenever you're listening to this, whenever you're watching this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Go get your copy. Once you're hooked, pay me cash money for the other two. Uh, and if you're wondering, do I really have to tell you about this every week? Yeah, Steam Reader, I really do, because every week somebody new discovers the show, and then they discover Banneker Bones. It's a beautiful circle. Um, and also, if you're watching this on YouTube, if you wanted to smash that subscribe button, that would really help out the channel and help me further promote all of the authors and publishing professionals who appear here. Uh, if you're not watching this on YouTube, hey, go to YouTube, search for Middle Grade Ninja, and then hit that subscribe button. I greatly appreciate it. Uh, as always, for thousands of interviews with agents, uh, authors, editors, all the world's best people, head to middlegradeninja.com. That is more than enough preamble. I am so excited. Uh, we are going to be chatting with Allison Gerber. Uh, Allison, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing very well. Glad to be here with you. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for uh, making the time. Uh, so esteemed audience knows that I never um, summarized anyone else's biography or anyone else's book. Uh, why would I make you sit through me doing either of those things when you're right here? Uh, so if you would give uh, esteemed audience kind of an overview of your background and we'll go from there. So I'm Allison Gerber. I am the author of Braced, Focus, and my new book, which came out on May 18th, is called Taking Up Space. Um, I write books that are own voices. So all of my books are based on my own experience in the world, my lived experience. The plots are not real. What happens in my contemporary middle grade novels is not what really happened in my life, but um, the feelings are all real. So I wore a back brace for scoliosis for two and a half years. I had undiagnosed ADHD, which then was diagnosed. And now I'm a person living with ADHD. And um, I have... I have, I am in recovery for disordered eating. Um, disordered eating is um, the focus of my new book, Taking Up Space, which is about Sarah, a seventh grade basketball player who is struggling to feel good about her body and herself. And disordered eating, in case maybe some of you aren't familiar with what that term is, it's not a medical diagnosis. It's just a way that we can talk about compulsive dieting, um, struggles with binging and restricting. And anytime that food is sort of being manipulated, to make you feel better or worse or to impact your emotions. It's not just to eat when you're hungry. Um, and the, the cool thing about taking up space is that it's also about basketball and it's also about a cooking competition and it's about friendship and crushes and, um, and family and how food and family can be complicated. Um, but ultimately I think it's a really fun read. So I'm excited to talk to you about all my books, but I'm especially excited to talk about taking up space. Well, that is the one I have uh, been enjoying today. I uh, just finished uh, about 30 minutes ago. Amazing. Fresh in my head. Um, and uh, I guess my first question is, have you eaten Doritos recently? <laughs> no, it's so funny. Is I was thinking to myself, with all the launch events I've done over the last week, I was like, how is it possible that I've not bought a bag of Doritos? Like, I had a whole plan to go to this. There's a store down the street that sells all the different kinds. And I was... Sarah and I don't necessarily agree on the flavor that we like. I'm a Cool Ranch kind of girl. Um, but I was like, how have I not made it to the store? So that's one of my goals for the next couple of days is to make it to the store down the street to get some Doritos. 
that was one of the big things I took away from the book is Allison Gerber really likes Doritos. She really, oh, Sarah, Sarah really likes Doritos. <laughs> Man, they come up frequently. <laughs> I, do. I do love Doritos. I do. If uh, anybody at the Dorito company is listening, read this book and then send Allison all the free Doritos. <laughs> Hashtag partner. <laughs> Um, well, let's see. Let's uh, let's start with the book, uh, and then we'll we'll talk about ADHD and how that impacts your writing and all kinds of great stuff, and probably flying saucers and ghosts. The Steve audience knows what kind of show this is. Uh, let's talk about taking up space. Uh, so this is based on some of your own uh, experience, um, and um, you had written in, in near the back of this book that you're hoping that this book is going to help readers recognize how much they matter and see that if something negative is taking up space in their minds, even if there isn't a name for it, they should ask for help. So what kind of negative things are we are we talking about? So I think um, what I mean by that is, I mean, I know what I mean by that. What I mean by that is, um, <laughs> what I mean by that is oftentimes I think, at least this has been my experience and I know I've seen other people do this too, is when um, when you have a, a, a problem or some sort of, something that's going on with you that doesn't have a name, you can't sort of define and say like, I'm experiencing depression right now. I'm experiencing the side effects of my ADHD. Something that we can really like claim and name and put a label on. It feels like that pain, the pain that's like the almost doesn't matter. And that's not true, it does matter. But it's very easy for people, other people to dismiss that pain and sort of I, I hear that a lot, especially right now in the pandemic, a lot of people saying, well, yes, yeah, that might be a problem, but also you're lucky or a lot of comparative suffering. And I think that pain gets diminished. And one of the things, one of the reasons it took me so long to get help for my disordered eating was that I felt like my pain didn't count because I didn't meet enough criteria to be diagnosed with an eating disorder. So I always felt like I was a person who didn't have an eating disorder instead of being a person who was also in a lot of pain. Um, and your pain doesn't have to be equal to somebody else's pain to count. Um, and I want kids, whatever that pain is, if their pain is sort of below the threshold of a medical diagnosis, that doesn't mean that their mental and physical health isn't suffering. And I want them to know that their pain counts and that they can still get help and still ask for help and still reach out to get support. You can uh, certainly, I think everybody can probably relate to that. Uh, but I know certainly with uh, hopefully coming out of the pandemic now, knock on wood, um, uh, if I look over the the past year, there's there's been all sorts of um, uncomfortable feelings, shall we say. It hasn't been the rosiest, cheeriest time in America. But as I look back, no one close to me uh, died from the disease. Um, our income level actually improved a little bit. I had, I was able to acquire a PlayStation 5. So when I talk about uh, some depression associated with the pandemic, some, some extreme anxiety, um, it is easy to dismiss that a little bit because I know how much so many other people are, are suffering. And I don't know if that's, if the, how much of that is some appropriate perspective uh, and how much of that is, uh, you know, dismissing something negative that that uh, is taking up space. Well, I think it can be both of those things at the same time. I think like your pain can you can recognize that somebody else's pain is bigger, that somebody else's loss is bigger. This is what I say to kids a lot because oftentimes when I'm teaching virtually to kids or I'm doing a school visit, 
they'll, I can tell that they're really bummed that they missed out on a soccer championship or that they didn't get to compete in the swim meet that they really wanted to compete in because of the pandemic. And they know that that loss, that that mourning is like not the same as obviously losing a loved one or losing something bigger in their life, but they still feel it. And so to give kids and to give adults, I think we right now especially need it too, to be like, your pain counts. Like whatever the extreme anxiety counts, uncertainty causes so much mental mental anguish and pain and that can exist in somebody. You can also be able to recognize that somebody else's pain exists and it's bigger and maybe somebody else's pain exists and it's it's it, it you can't quite understand why it's so big, but you can try to understand and empathize. And I feel like we need to sort of create space to empathize with our for ourselves to be like, yeah, like this was a hard time and that uncertainty does something to your brain. I know from wearing a brace for for when I got my back brace, they didn't know how long I was going to have to wear it for. They said like until you're done growing. So part of the anguish of wearing the brace was the unknown of when that was going to end. Like not having a a marker to be like I'm like my goal is this time frame, and that's sort of how the pandemic has felt. For me, it's been it has not been triggering, but I it feels very familiar. Like I know how to deal with this type of uncertainty, but I can see why nobody else does because it's such a strange experience, but it's something I felt before because I felt it when I wore my brace. Mm. It's really, it, and I, so I know like I, I can recognize how painful it is, but I have so many coping mechanisms that I feel like, oh, there's that coping mechanism. Oh, there's that coping mechanism. <laughs> <laughs> Great, I'm so glad I developed that <laughs> to deal with the worldwide pandemic. <laughs> How, uh, how old were you when you had the, the brace put on? Um, so I started being monitored when I was seven. So I was followed by doctors every six months to make to see my if my scoliosis was, was progressing because my mom um, had a very severe curve in her spine. She had one of the very first spinal fusions in the country. Um, and so I was followed from seven until I was 11. And at 11, I got a brace and I wore it until I was 13. Gotcha. And then uh, I was curious then, because I know that Braced uh, is about a soccer player. Basketball features very heavily in, in taking up, I don't know, does Focused have an, uh, an athlete in this? Chess. Well, chess. There's not a, it's a, it's a team sport, um, but, you know, it's a game. That's my best sport, so that's <laughs> <laughs> Oh, then I really want to hear what you think about it, if you ever have a chance to read it or listen to the audiobook. Uh, it's on my it's on my list. Uh, I absolutely love taking up space, and so I'm I'm happy that there's two more books that await me. Were you uh, were you an athlete? Um, so I went to a, so the the short answer is no. Um, I was not a great athlete. I mean, I went to a school where it was a school requirement to play a sport, which is sort of like a weird form of torture if you think about it. <laughs> But what was really cool about it is even though I was never good at sports, like I never, I never had a brain for sports, I guess is, is how I would put it. Um, I could like do the skills and I could be, but I didn't, I didn't, it wasn't sports smart. I didn't know where to be on the field or I didn't know where to be on the court. Um, and, but I loved being on a team. Like there was something about being on a team that really I'm interested in, I was excited by. I wish that there was, I mean, I felt that way about being in theater. I did a lot of theater 
in middle school and high school and like being on a cast was the same feeling of like, you know, you had like the stage managers and you had the the tech people and like, and, and the actors and the directors, everybody's like part of this thing to make this show happen. And that's what being on a team always felt like for me. It's like, we're all in it to like win. Um, but yeah, I was never a great athlete. Theater was my other sport, so <laughs> we're getting all the <laughs> Yeah, theater was for sure the sport I excelled at the most. <laughs> uh, and then um, while uh, while I'm thinking about ways in which uh, Sarah might be somewhat like you, but is not like you, obviously, as a, as a fictional character, um, she writes down charts of the detective stories. Um, listen to me explaining my novels to you. You <laughs> love this book. Let me let me tell you how it ends. Um, <laughs> but she's she you know she's writing the charts to to figure out the ending. And I thought that's so specific. Was that an activity that you or someone you knew uh, engaged in? You know what's so funny is I've never I just like made that up. It just came out of the fiction of writing it. I mean. To be honest, I am like a great, I'm a great amateur detective. As an amateur detective, um, it's really hard for me to find a mystery where I don't know what's going to happen well in advance. I mean, I'm, I am always on the hunt for it. I watch, I consume so much British murder mystery. It's what I do when I'm not writing and I'm not reading. I'm basically consuming British murder mysteries. Um, and so it's really hard for me to not know what's going to happen like very quickly. So I felt like Sarah and I do share that, that, that she wants to be stumped. She wants to be, she wants the mystery to really like make her brain churn and for the puzzle pieces to be difficult to put together. And I definitely am always yearning for that as a reader and as a watcher. Um, and I think just my brain is like constantly looking for stimulation. So that's one of the ways that I look for it. Um, but I never thought to do a chart until I wrote that into her character. And now I'm like, maybe I'm going to start doing that. I mean, <laughs> I always like want to be, I want like everybody to know that I was right. So I feel like I would have to do it in a way where like I would chart it out in between the pages. Like I would have to have like almost like index cards to be like, see, I knew here on this page, <laughs> like there'd be proof. So I feel like I'm not sure that like even I would believe how great I am at solving murder mysteries <laughs> unless I had that proof. Um, like live tweeting books a thing? It should be a thing. What did you say? I said, is live tweeting books a thing? I mean, As that you read that should be that should be a thing. I agree. I mean, I suppose you'd have to put, you know, spoiler warning as you get to the <laughs> toward the end. <laughs> well, I always say I wish I could like bet on books. I wish there was like a market for like yeah, you, know, you can like bet on sports. I wish I could bet on books because I always know like which ones are going to do the best and which ones everybody are going to love. I'm like, how come I can't make money at this? As far as like, uh, if you look at books being released, like this one's probably going yep. to be more successful than others. Yep. Or actually I'm better at like the underdog books. I'm better at the books that like haven't been chosen necessarily in advance. Um, but that like, I know the sort of like, they're the ones that I know who's it's going to, people are going to find it and it's going to resonate pretty early on. Gotcha. So you're going for the, the challenges, not like I bet this new John Green book will be successful. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> Figured that out, did you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, 
Well, given your love of mysteries, I mean, is it possible? I don't know if you've got another uh, own voices book uh, ahead of you, but is there a point at some point where you might uh, write a write a mystery of your own? I guess it's a mystery. You're going to have to wait and see. <laughs> <laughs> I've been telling everybody who asks what my next project is that they're just going to have to wait because it, I'm really trying to like build that suspense, but it's really good. <laughs> <laughs> maybe i'll be able to announce it by the time this is actually live in august okay so i'll let you yeah, know so. you'll be the one of the, you'll be the first to know so you can like edit you can tweet it out yeah, i'll edit it in right here as we're talking like i predict <laughs> I'll <look> like genius <laughs> we'll bet on it see if there's if anybody's thinking about creating a market for betting on books we're here for that I think that's a good idea. Yeah. It's not that much more ridiculous than the stock market. Come on. No. I mean, I think this like it's just another industry. I mean, people are betting on cryptocurrency all day long. This way at least they're reading. Why not middle grade fiction? I mean We're not gonna destroy the environment. This is <laughs> this is a healthy alternative. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, and then um, we'll start uh, at, at the beginning, because with this book, it is um, there are um, some nice heartwarming moments there. There's humor along the way, uh, plenty of that. But there there's also some some hard stuff before the end. Uh, and there are some spots that I, I imagine will probably bring tears to esteemed uh, audiences. eye. but you don't start directly uh, with with the. Um, with hints of the eating disorder that's to come or or even the problems in the household that that's i think chapter two is when we start learning that mom is uh, a little weird about about food uh spoilers i i, I don't know if that's a spoiler or not i uh, probably not uh, <laughs> if it is it's gonna make my next few questions really awkward <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to talk a little bit about the beginning. When I ask a question like this, I always want to make it clear I don't have uh, some better opening in mind because I think the opening works really well. I just want to get your thoughts on why you chose to open where you do, which is with a basketball game rather than the main conflict. I suspect I know the answer, but I want to know your thoughts. So this book, I actually played around with a lot of different options for where to start. Um, but ultimately, at the beginning of the story, we start at the book. Basketball is the most important thing about Sarah. That's how she defines herself. That's how she sees the world. That's what she values about herself. And so there's really no other place to start the story than with a character who to show, you know, what the character wants and what who the character is than to show her doing the thing that she feels defines her. So that's why I started there, because it wasn't sort of the complications at home with food that defined her in her own mind and when the book starts. Um, I think the, that she would say, like at the beginning of the story, like, I am a basketball player. So I wanted to start with where she is. So you want your reader to know Sarah, you want them to invest immediately in the character, then we start to mess with her. <laughs> exactly. It's like puppet, it's like, it's like puppeteering, like before you put them in the hot water, you have to like, <laughs> Set the stage a little bit. <laughs> Get to know her, love her, understand her, relate to her. Well, let's talk about the uh, the hot water because something that that fascinated me is I should hate her parents, uh, and I'm I'm definitely not a huge fan of them. 
I wasn't taking notes on how to parent myself <laughs> as, a, uh, as I'm reading, but I don't hate them. Uh, they're, they're, they're sympathetic characters, despite the fact that they are um, kind of the main source of antagonism, at least for, for the start of the novel. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Dad a little bit more. Um, I, I, I could sympathize with Mom because she clearly has got tremendous issues of her own. But with Dad, I was like, where are you, guy? <laughs> it's really interesting that you say that you know it's it's so interesting there hasn't been a lot i haven't heard a lot of that and um it, i think that's because many of my beta readers and uh excuse me sorry i don't know what that is um, many of my beta readers and as well as my editor were like really honed in on dad and there was you know i hadn't seen dad when I first um, wrote the book as sort of being a problem. Um, that wasn't, I didn't write that, inten- I didn't write him as a problem intentionally. And then I realized that I could use that um, as I edited the book, that he's a silent problem um, and that he's enabling mom. And some of it is conscious and some of it is unconscious. Um, but I, I think that that character, I really had to work hard to make sure that I positioned him in a way that I would feel was, was realistic. Um, and so it's really interesting that that, I think also, I assume that, are you a father? Yes. So as a father. That's probably part of it. You're probably, you're like putting yourself in dad's position and, and thinking like, I could, I would never be this absent. I feel like the, at, like I, I sort of wanted him to be both present and absent at the same time. Um, I think that that, ha- I mean, I know from, um, I know that it happens. Um, and I really played around with that character a lot. I really used him as a chess piece. Um, and I haven't heard a lot of feedback on it. So it's really interesting to hear you, you know, uh, have a strong, I have a more strong feeling about him than about mom. I'm very, I'm very interested and curious about that. Well, no, I, I definitely, uh, mom is the most immediate problem right off the bat, and I disliked her greatly, uh, and um, for just for esteemed audience, uh, mom is never buying enough groceries or sometimes no groceries. Um, she's just cruel with the amount of food that she makes available or fails to make available for her daughter. Um, and but she's always eating cookies. She's always eating candy, and so we start to see that oh, there's that's not healthy either. That's this is not okay. Um, and but when you realize that, you're like, okay, well, mom's obviously got her own thing that she's dealing with. The next logical question is, where is dad? It's exactly <laughs> Why is dad right. Yeah. No, I think that's. I mean, I think that's very smart read on the story. I think that's exactly what I was hoping a reader would, how a reader would respond to the book. I think that's like, that's a near perfect read. So thank you for pointing that out and saying it. Um, You know, it makes sense to me that, I I guess I didn't let you finish your your question, but it makes sense to me that you would find them both, you know, difficult and complicated, but also sympathetic. Well, that was um, the gist of my question is, what did you do? Because it's there's there's a tremendous amount of skill involved in, in this novel. So I know you did it, and I want to hear how you did it. How did you go about making these what should be unlikable characters? Because they are not they're not ideal parents. How did you go finding opportunities to make them sympathetic? I think that in real life, you know, sometimes you get the parent that's perfect for you, and that he, that. The, the love that they are giving is exactly the love that you're receiving. 
But more often than not, the love we give is not the love we receive. And I mean that in the way that like, so I'll use the example of books in, in the novel. And this is one of the things that I used. Um, so Sarah's mom and Sarah have a very close relationship and a close connection about mystery novels. Um, they read two books at a time, they trade, they discuss, they connect over books. Books are their love language, that's their love language. That's, you know, Sarah's mom knows exactly which books to get her and she, she can predict it. She doesn't need Sarah to even say it or advocate for herself. It's just an innate connection between the two of them. It's how they express their love for each other. And Sarah receives that love just in the same way that mom is giving that love. Um, and food is not like that. Food is not easy for the mom in this book. Um, for many different reasons, food is complicated. And so she's not trying to be mean or cruel or withhold food from her child. She's having struggling to manage food and to bring food into the home and to give that love. And or she doesn't even see that as love. She's just struggling with her own relationship with food. And Sarah is interpreting that as not being loved, that she's not worthy enough of, you know, having a mom who just brings food in the way that she, her mom brings books in. Um, and I, I think parent-child relationships are complicated. I wrote this book. I started writing this book when I was pregnant with my daughter. I finished it as a mom. Um, I understood the complications of it as a child and then to see it as a parent and to sort of see it evolve a little bit over the course of revising the book. Um, I think I just really dug into those things that you're, it's, it's, you can still have love and there can still be good even if it's not everything and it's not perfect. And so the areas where maybe one person is struggling, especially with an adult child and, and a parent, that I found my own voice and to say what I needed to speak up for myself. And, um, and, I, and I sort of took that and went back to being in middle school to think like, where are the places where I could have found my voice and where are the places that that would have been really hard? Um, and I think I let Sarah sort of play around with both of those things um, to give to really make it as real as possible and to make those parent relationships as real as possible because parents can try their best and do the best and still really mess it up. I mean, not you and me, but... No, no, not us. We're... <laughs> <laughs> but other people. <laughs> and now that I've, I've, I have a child and every year as he gets older, uh, YA fiction becomes more and more of a horror story to me. Like, no, I, I refuse to accept that he'll be a teenager someday. <laughs> <laughs> Totally a horror story. That's <laughs> Young adult novels, a horror story that will <laughs> become my life. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I like I like young, cute yeah. uh, children, but then they become teenagers and they have problems and needs and. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I do, uh, uh, and I, I think that was the moment that I forgave mom a little bit was when she brought mystery books for Sarah and, and shared that with her. Oh, okay. Well, it's... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it so really... long as you're encouraging reading, I can forgive a lot. It was a really important piece of her character, I think, that that story, that, that piece of it, um, to really show that, like, love is so complicated. And especially the love, parent and child love is so complicated. And 
you know, and that you can really love somebody and really mess up part of it. And uh, it was kind of an oddball question, but part of what I liked about this book is I have two sisters uh, and I was never allowed to go to their slumber parties and I wasn't particularly interested. But once in a while, I'd, I'd try to listen up a little bit and I'd wonder, what, what are they thinking that's a little <laughs> bit different than me? And in a book like this, where you've got Sarah interacting with so many other uh, teen girls, but ah, finally I'm at the slumber party. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. A great. <laughs> are you the youngest? It <laughs> shocked me. I'm sorry. Do you have two older sisters? I have an older sister and a younger sister. Okay. All right. It's really interesting. Okay. Uh, and um, so, um, so at some point, uh, this is just a very tiny detail. This is not what the book is about. But Sarah <laughs> notices that one character that she maybe kind of has a crush on, I think it's Benny, um, has developed armpit hair and not others. And I thought, is, was that a turn on? Was that the secret all the law was having the armpit hair in middle school? <laughs> changes, you know? At first, it's like, ew, armpit hair. And then it's like, oh, ew, no armpit hair? It just depends on when that change occurs. Well, listen, I, I don't think I'd ever read that before. Like, really? <laughs> well, I, if nothing else, I mean, I have a unique middle school perspective. <laughs> <laughs> Uniquely authentic. Uh, I don't want to give away the ending, but I do want to kind of talk about it without spoiling. Okay. So I'll let you mostly talk about it. Um, but a book like this where, um, I don't think it's a spoiler to say, well, we, we've said uh, that Sarah is going to develop uh, an eating disorder. Um, and that is something that I'm going to back necessarily... you up just for a second. I'm going to back you up just for a second because she doesn't, act, she doesn't develop an eating disorder. Okay. So um, she never is in a diagnosable state. And the reason I want to clarify that is because for reader, for because there are great and amazing books about kids who develop eating disorders and are diagnosed and um, and get treatment for an eating disorder. This is what about half of kids face, which is where you develop a complicated relationship with food that impacts your physical and mental health, but it's not in the DSM. So there's no technical term. Um, like there's no, I'm going to put this in quotes, technical problem. Um, and I say that because we're talking about a problem that that is so normal that it's hard to see as a problem. Um, and obviously, I think, you know, if you read enough fiction and you think about your mental health enough, you can see that very clearly Sarah's struggling and she has a problem. But uh, there are, you know, many adults and many kids who would say, well, that's just normal. That's what we all feel about our bodies. Um, and that may be true, but the, just because it's common doesn't mean it's uh, healthy. Gotcha. Yeah, so I just wanted to clarify that because there are such great resources and books about kids with eating disorders, um, which I will, I can also send you some of those. Um, my brain, they're like all flying out of my brain. Jen Petra Roy um, has two great books. One's a workbook and one is a book of fiction and they're fantastic. Um, good enough and you are enough and um that's all i have right now that's like my brain is <laughs> fair enough we've both been parenting all day and it's just getting late so <laughs> who knows what could happen before the end of this conversation exactly
Well, I tell you what. Um, what is, um, having written the book, having spent a lot of time thinking about these very, or this, 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 this very situation and having experienced something similar yeah, yeah. Uh, yourself, um, what is a healthy way to talk to children about food? Because we, you know, you would want your children to eat, eat the Doritos, just not nothing but Doritos, some, somewhere in there that needs to be some healthy food. So what's the best way to approach a conversation like that? So I think that taking up space is a really, really good place to start having a conversation. I think we all, there's many of us have a complicated and uncomfortable relationship with food for all different kinds of reasons. So we live in a diet culture. A diet culture is a society that, um, that prioritizes weight, size, and shape over actual health and well-being. And we have for so long. We've lived in this diet culture for hundreds plus years. Um, and some of that is based in the temperance movement. Some of it came out of the temperance movement. So like long time ago, and then it's sort of evolved over generations. And it almost feels like this toxic family tradition that we've passed down. And it feels so familiar that we're like, oh yeah, that's, that must be right. That must be the answer. But it's like, no, just because something feels familiar doesn't mean that it's good for you. Um, and that's sort of what diet culture ends up being. So there's this sense of, you'll see, like, once you start to see it, you see it everywhere. So, and that's a lot of what happens in the book, I think, that I try to sort of point it out, is like when things say guilt-free. Well, why should food and guilt be associated with one another? That there's nothing, all food is good food. That's one of the messages of the book, is that, um, you know, your body needs a variety of different nutrients to survive and thrive and sustain itself and if you listen to your body um it can it you know you one of the things that one of the takeaways that sarah learns is if you if you let yourself eat a whole bag of potato chips you're not going to want to eat any more potato chips because your body is going to want something else it's going to need a different nutrient if you're really listening to yourself um and that's something that that's like real i like a, one of the big takeaways for her i mean there's lots of different ways of talking about food. And I think I'll leave it to readers to um, to learn as Sarah learns and to sort of get confused with her and then get unconfused with her. Um, but I think, you know, the most important thing you can do is talk to your kids about it and talk to your kids about, and if you're nervous, you're gonna say the wrong thing, or if you're scared to talk about food, like this is a great resource for you and for them. Um, and if you're a kid and you're like, my parent maybe doesn't know how to talk to me about this, um, this is also a resource you can bring to your parent and say, like, I think you should read this with me. Um, and most of the time, you're, if you ask your parent to read a book with you, they probably will. Um, and I, I found that there's I've, I've had a, a lot of mother daughters, father daughter, father son, uh, mother son read the book sort of in tandem or read the chapter by chapter together. Um, and having dialogues, even over the last week, I've I've heard from a lot of different um, sort of family structures where they were reading the book together and having really good conversations, good and important conversations to call out diet culture, to say like how maybe we're doing this thing in our house and we can change the way we're doing it, we can change the way we're looking at it. It's like it's never too late to be like, oh, we can actually be really healthy, like care about how we feel about ourselves and how we value ourselves and how um, on the inside, not just on the outside. Isn't part of this, and this is just speculation on my part, but isn't this part of this just 
another another dirty part of capitalism where we're constantly being sold something and how do you make a sale you create a need you're not good enough for whatever reason but good news i've got the product to help you you've got it you've got it yeah that's exactly right i mean and you could probably Oh, I have I have something I'll share with you, but not during the show. <laughs> Fair enough. But yeah, I think that's a hundred percent right. It's like this is a seventy, probably more than that at this point, billion dollar industry um, of you know making people feel bad about themselves so they buy something to feel good, to feel worthy. And this is, I mean, ultimately this is a book about self worth and how we value ourselves and. Why should it be about our size and our shape and our weight when that's not even, you literally don't know if somebody's healthy or not by looking at them. You don't know. You can't possibly know. Because that's one of the things I think Sarah also realizes is like, I'm not healthy, even though I look like I might be healthy. And so like, I certainly can't tell if anybody else is. And that's one of the things I thought a lot about when I was writing the book because I was pregnant and having a disordered eating relapse. Um, And everybody kept on being like, you're such a fit pregnant person. And every time somebody would say that, I was like, I am unwell. Like I, I felt, I mean, I knew I was, I was getting professional help. I was taking, I was doing everything I could to turn things around, but I was so, I was really triggered during my pregnancy by my body changing and having been in a brace and felt feeling like trapped and like I was suffocating. Um, and so I sort of went into panic mode and that brought on a lot of the triggered me in a lot of ways that I had been triggered as an adolescent. Um, and I really was not healthy and it took a lot of strength for me to get through, like to just put one foot in front of the other and take care of myself and take care of my daughter and to be then receiving like positive feedback for like something that I knew was not good. And that I had like explored deeply. And that's what really when I started writing, because I was just like, I can't, I can't argue with people who are telling me that I'm doing a good job when I know I'm not doing a good job. Um, And so like, that's really where the beginning moments of the book came. Every time I had one of those feelings and somebody would try to like fight me on it, I'd be like, okay, I just write this down. Like put it on the page, put it on the page. Cause then I would know that it's true. I would know that I was having a hard time. And I would know, I would remember what those feelings were like. And it really, ben- I think it really benefited the book um, that I like wrote into the pain. Um, since you're being forthcoming, don't don't share anything that you don't want to share. An esteemed audience knows that I'm not Barbara Walters. I'm never trying to make anybody cry. Totally. But, um, when did your um, issues with food begin uh, and... How long has this continued to be an issue for you? So I can probably, I mean, I could probably track them back to before this. I mean, my issues are really based in a combination of of hearing from age seven that there was something wrong with my body that had to be fixed. And then at the same time... Yeah, I mean, that's like when I started getting monitored for scoliosis. So that's when, uh, you know, a team of doctors came in to say there was something wrong with me. We had to keep watching her because, and like, I'm in my underwear and 15 men are standing there saying there's something wrong with my body. Like, I mean, exactly. Like, this is, <laughs> people are like, why are you so worried about having to have your daughter monitored for scoliosis? And I'm like. <laughs> sounds more pleasant to be abducted by aliens. Exactly. I mean, exactly. And so there's that piece of it. 
And then there's, and, and also, by the way, that's a perfect example of normalizing because my mom had had the same experience and my dad is an orthopedic surgeon. So like everybody in the room was like, this is normal because, because it had happened to my mom. So it's like when we don't validate the feelings of when parents have their feelings invalidated, it's really hard for them to validate it for their kids. Like I don't, it wasn't until I wrote Braced and my mom and I sort of started talking about it that she was like, I didn't even know because she had had that same experience. And, and it's actually been really great for us and our relationship because we've gotten a chance to really talk about it and, and heal. Both of us have had a chance to heal from that pain. But so that, that's that piece of it. And then on the other side of it, I also had undiagnosed ADHD. So I was, when you have ADHD, um, the part of your brain that controls your attention, which is what people really know ADHD to be like a people who have ADHD, the sort of known thing is that you have a difficult time regulating your attention. You also have a really hard time regulating your emotion because the part of your brain that controls your attention also controls your emotions. So I was having like emotional outbursts in class. Um, and this is like in first grade, so right around the same time. And part of the reason that was happening is I was frustrated because I was falling behind. I was struggling to read. I was struggling to pay attention and do well in school, but I knew I could do it. So there was this uh, what was happening and what I felt could happen were different. And so I was getting frustrated and that was creating a reaction. But at the time it was 1991. Um, my mom actually took me to Yale to be tested by the person who did the original ADHD study and girls weren't being diagnosed with ADHD at the time. Um, I mean, very, very few were. And I was already, by the time I got there, had been socialized to sit in my chair. I had, um, I was already starting to work with a tutor um, who really tortured me. I mean, this tutor, like there was a bell, she would ring the bell whenever I got out of, whenever I did anything. It was like, it was, it was really bad. So there was this combination of, I was being told there was something wrong with my brain. I was being told there was something wrong with my body. And by adults, by like real professional adults, by like the tutor recommended by the psychologist, by the best orthopedic surgeon that Boston Children's Hospital had to offer, you know, they were feeding you with these messages, which were this, you're, you're not valuable. And there's something wrong with you that we need to fix. And so that's really, I can probably trace my disordered eating back to that. But really, it came to a head when I got my back brace at 11. Um, and that's when I really wanted to start to shrink myself. And I just wanted to I didn't want to, I felt like I was so loud and I was so much and I was taking up all this emotional space in the world because my brace sort of took up all the space in our house. It was suffocating to me. It was suffocating to my mom who, you know, it was very triggering for her to have me going through something that she'd been, through. my mom had a horrific experience with her scoliosis. It was really defining of her life. She was in a body cast for six months. She was in a back brace for two and a half years. So like her trauma, my brace sort of like took over everything. And so I just wanted to, to shrink it and make it smaller and make it all the problems disappear. And so, and I wanted to control the things I could. So I started to control my food. And so that's really where it started. And I didn't get help until I turned 21. Um, so from 11 to 21 was really like a very dark, very, very, for lots of reasons. And I didn't get diagnosed. When I was 21, I got diagnosed with ADHD. Um, and that was sort of the beginning of my recovery and my journey um, toward 
a happy place and a a good mental health um, to really taking, knowing how to take care of myself, knowing how to advocate for myself. And it took me, I would say it took me about, you know, five years to really get to a place where I was, I had gotten rid of all the toxic people. I had gotten rid of the toxic energy. I was ready to like live a healthy life in all the different ways. Um, and I'm really lucky. I mean, I had a lot of support. I had a lot of access to mental health Um support I just had a lot of access which so as soon as I knew there was a problem and I recognized it and I got it I really went for it with therapy and um and then so I was I really was in recovery truly um for a long time before I decided to get pregnant and so that's why it was so surprising that I was so triggered um it really came I really surprised me because I was in such a good stable place and I was scared that I might be triggered by changes to my body, but I had a support team in place and I felt comfortable enough to go forward with it. I would have picked an alternative path had I knew that was gonna happen. Um, and so, yeah, so it was a long journey for me. And those years between 11 to 21 were deeply unpleasant. I mean, other than puberty, when, when is your body going to go through more changes than while uh, you're pregnant? Exactly. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and nobody really talks about those two things as sort of being parallel experiences. But once I started talking about it, I wrote an article for Newsweek about it. I mean, people have come out of the woodwork being like, I can't believe no one's talking about this. Because it does, I mean, I think it's different for everybody. But if you had a traumatic experience during puberty, it can often sort of bubble up. trying to think uh, I know it's a lot it's a lot you know you asked the question <laughs> you, you, you but I should there. point out to to esteemed audience who's thinking geez Rob what do you, how many mean questions are you gonna ask if you had written a book about a chocolate factory we'd be talking chocolate no, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> no to me honestly and I say this like truly that it's it's easier for me to tell my truth than it is for me to hold it back inside like I'd rather everybody know I'm like oh now you know who I am so like we're good now we're like really as good friends as I thought we were going to be. <laughs> we we have grown close already. Exactly. Well, while we're at it, let's talk about the the, the ADHD uh, because I had read that you that you feel that this this helps you uh, channel your focus for writing that you it's almost a superpower um, that helps you with research. So how how does that ADHD enable your writing? So ADHD is this funny little thing where, so it's the way that your brain is just shaped. It's the way that your brain is formed is different. Um, and so as difficult as it is for me to regulate my attention, meaning like to transition from one thing to another. So if you have to go from like math to history to English, and then you've got a break for lunch, and then you have to have recess, and then you go to your, like school is a nightmare because you've got to you're in it, you're learning, and then you, you're being forced to go to the hallway. You've got to like get all your stuff, pack it up, go to the hall. The idea of moving my body from place to place with the bag and my things and remembering all the things, I don't know how I ever survived it. It also impacts your um, executive functioning. So you, so for example, something like mental math, where you have to take a piece of information, hold it in the, your brain and move it around and do something else with it is actually impossible. And I didn't under, like, I cannot do mental math. I will never be able to do mental math. And I'm so proud to say that because it took, because I was always like, well, why can't I do it? What's wrong with me? And I'm like, well, actually, like, I just can't do it. It's not, my brain is not built for it. And so, but the flip side of it is that 
even though I can't regulate my attention, I can't regulate my attention. So when I get obsessed with something, it's like all I want to talk about, all I want to think about. So I write books about things that I'm obsessed with. Like there was a period of time where I was really obsessed with chess. I was obsessed with chess culture. I was obsessed with chess boards. I was obsessed with how the regulation board, the pieces felt in your hand and how it felt to like roll out the board and what the colors looked like. And I wanted to just like research it and dive into it and think about it and smell it and feel it. And that makes for really good storytelling. Um, like there's nothing like creating a fictional world when you're obsessed with creating that fictional world. Um, so for me, it's been a, it's a real, it, it is a huge advantage. Um, now it's difficult to manage in all the other parts of my life, but for in writing in my little bubble where I get to like make up my own people and have them do terrible things to each other and get into all kinds of mischief and trouble. It's so fun. I'm just glad I made it here to pick the thing I wanted to do that I could be obsessed with. So what are you obsessed with currently? Um, so I went to a, um, I went to, I grew up in New England and I went to a prep school that was like very weird. I mean, weird, seemingly normal and like elitist and interesting, but there was like an under, there's something mysterious. I'll leave you with that on the I'm ready to place my bet on what your next book will be about. <laughs> <laughs> so exciting. <laughs> so uh, what does your workday look like? That's a hard question to answer right now because I've been doing so much publicity for taking up space. Um, but normally when I'm not um, when I'm not inundated with um, interviews and personal essays to write and blog questions to answer, which I love doing, but this has been sort of a, a like chunk of time on its own. Um, normally what I do is I take my daughter to school in the morning. So she gets dropped off at 8.30. I have like, a, I do a little ritual with my coffee where I go and I get, it depends, I change my ritual up. It used to be a little different when I could go and write at a coffee shop because then I would bring all my stuff with me and I would go to the coffee shop and meet friends usually in, have my coffee and set myself up. But now that I can't, I would do that a couple days a week, but now that I can't do that, I basically, and I go get my latte, I get my breakfast and I come down to my office, which is in, it's like an English basement in our house. So I'm like, I basically close the door and I'm in my office until, and I don't leave till 5.30. So I'm like very, um, and I do different things within that time period, but mostly when I'm drafting, I set a timer and I do hour long sprints. Um, and so I usually know what I'm going to write about. I know at least the framework of what I'm going to write about. I do like thousand word hour long sprints. I maybe do three a day. And then in between, I either listen to an audiobook or I do some research on something that came out of some of the writing that I did. Um, or like there's some other rabbit hole that I want to go down. <laughs> Is listening to the audiobook important between sprints because it gives your eyes a break from reading and staring at words? Yeah, it it um it lets my brain check out. Like sense. I like somebody else gets to carry me for a little while. Smart. I'm gonna 
try. I, I listened to uh, Taking Up Space on audio. The narrator's fantastic. Oh, thank you for saying that. I, I think she's wonderful. I I I got to have some say in the, in the narrator, and I'm so happy with her narration. It's great. So is that you like an American Idol judge listening to multiple people? <laughs> you know, I don't know what would have happened if like the person who produced the audio book and I had disagreed because we didn't. We, I mean, yeah, we just, I, I had four, I think four or five auditions that I listened to and they all read the same chapter. And I think we, the, the producer and I really agreed on who had a sense of the storytelling and who was just wasn't the right fit. And then we narrowed it down to two people. And then ultimately I sort of said, I think I'd prefer this person. Um, Cassandra Morris is the narrator of this and and she agreed. So I don't know what would have happened. I don't know that I had so much, I don't know if I had as much say in the process as I feel I had, <laughs> but I feel like I had a lot of say, so they did a great job. So it's possible they'd already settled on her and they're like, wow, that was her idea. <laughs> I have no idea, but I felt really good about it. And I'm so happy. I feel like she really, like, she got it. She got the story. Gotcha. Uh, and then, um, oh, what was I going to say? Something brilliant. I have no doubt. But it's <laughs> out of my head. Uh, well, I did want to ask um, uh, about if you're writing three, a good day, 3,000 words, if you're not doing your publicity or making time to, to come on the show, which I, I greatly appreciate. Um, 3,000 words a day, how long typically does it take you to write a book? Well, it never ends up being 3,000 words a day. It ends up being like 3,000 words and then I delete things and then, you know, I have to rewrite something and then, or then I get, you know, one of those sprints doesn't go well because I get distracted. You know, that's always my goal, but it takes me, regardless of what I do, it takes me six months to write a book. Gotcha. Do you plot time? Are you writing as you go? Plot? So I have a, and I guess I should say also that like I have periods of time between writing where I don't have any idea what I'm writing about. And so I have to like, I do this thing where I know a piece of the story and I have to figure out the rest of it. So it's sort of like I'm puzzling. I'm like solving a mystery, but I'm doing it by putting the mystery together. Like I'm putting the puzzle together. Um, like with, I can speak to taking up space. Like I didn't, I knew Sarah and I knew her two best friends and I knew her parents, but I didn't know basketball. And I tried tennis and I tried cross country and I tried dance and I, I tried all these other things and none of them worked. And I knew they weren't working. And like my husband wanted to go to the ACC tournament for his birthday. So we went and I was like, it's basketball. I don't know how I knew, but I just knew like, so it's like, I'm always putting the pieces together. So take some time to do that. Um, before I would say like, I start drafting in six months. And when I start drafting, I know the beginning of her, of the emotional and physical arc. And I know the end of the emotional and physical arc, but I don't know, um, how things are going to transpire. Gotcha. So I'm like on the journey too. So things will happen and be like, I didn't, I couldn't see that coming. And I'm like, me neither. <laughs> Wasn't that great? <laughs> and that's another, I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't be so flippant because ADHD is incredibly challenging to manage. And it's actually been very painful for me over during the pandemic. Um, and I say that like, it is truly a disability, but it is wonderful for storytelling because you just, the imagination is just, I mean, it's just so fun. <laughs> you never know who you're going to wake up to. It's always an adventure. 
when uh, when did you know you wanted to be a writer? Um, you know, I don't think I I really knew until I was doing it. Um, I never wrote. I didn't. I shouldn't say never wrote as a kid. I wasn't. I didn't think I was a writer. I didn't think I could be because I wasn't a. I wasn't like a typical reader. I really struggled in school. I spent a lot of time in the library and I was always, I guess I was always reading, but I didn't self-identify that way. So I was an English major in college, but I never took a creative writing class. Um, I just like, didn't think it was for me. I didn't think I was talented enough or good enough. And when people are like, well, I have a talent for writing. I'm like, I never have said that ever. And I've never felt that. I think I have a talent for um, being honest and for finding, you know, what makes character. I'm what makes characters and people tick in psychology and um, why people do the things they do. And so that's the thing I'm most interested in. It's the most interesting thing I'm most interested in as a reader. Also, it's what I'm always looking for. Um, and so I think probably it wasn't until. So I, I sold Braced in 2015. It came out in 2017. So probably around 2009 is when I started to be like, I'm going to write a book. And I started to try to write a book. Before that, I was writing like personal essays and I was interested in writing, but I wouldn't have been like, I'm a writer. Or I'm going to be an author one day. I wasn't like ready to say that that felt too scary and big and like not for me. Like I wasn't going to be in the club. Um, the English degree was the intent to teach or just to read all the best books? <laughs> um, you know, so I've said this before, but I don't, you know, I don't know if anybody would have heard this before. So I went to a school, I went to a small liberal arts school. And so I went as a theater major and I sort of like took some English classes. There were actually, I took an English class my first semester and I had a great professor. So I just kept on taking English classes because... This professor was so good. I mean, he just really knew narrative and he, the way he talked about story, I was interested in. So I just sort of got sucked into it. Um, and I actually, I, I would have been a theater major had I completed, I missed doing one of the texts. Like we had to do like a, two different texts to be a major, like a, you do lighting or costume or stage management. So I did, co I did costume design as one of them, but then I just like never got around to doing the other one. It was like, you had to do it on one of the shows and I never did it. And so I was technically would have been a minor, but I lost the paperwork. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, actually that's, okay. So I picked up the paperwork for records and registration. I got it signed by my advisor and then I never handed it in. Like, probably still at the bottom of that car, which, like, somebody now is in some junkyard somewhere now. Like, you know. Oh, things have worked out, so whatever. It's worked out fine. <laughs> Didn't end up, like, mattering. But I feel like that is everything you need to know about what it feels like to have undiagnosed ADHD. It's like you do all the work. you And you get no credit for it. And you lose the paperwork. I've never been in a job interview where somebody asked me, what was your major in college? There's, like, college degree. Can I call and verify it? Yep, great. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, I'm, I, I got what I need, I got everything that I needed out of it. I mean, I basically got to study theater and I got to study English and I got to study story. So, I mean, what's better than that? Yeah. And do you still do any, uh, any, any, any acting, any theater work? No, I mean, I, to be honest, I, I did a semester 
at Tisch at NYU, um, like as part of, it was sort of like my study abroad. I went to Tisch. Um, and that's when I really, I took a playwriting class and I just found myself sort of writing dialogue in the back of my acting classes. And I was like, oh, if I'm doing this, then I don't want to be doing that. And so for a little while, I thought like maybe I would be a playwright. I thought I would, you know, write scripts. Um, I took a screenwriting class at another point. Um, I love dialogue. I actually really love writing dialogue. It's one of my favorite things to write. It's like what pushes me to keep writing the book is I'm like, I'll just write a scene. I'll just write some people talking. Um, yeah, I really, I, so I haven't, since that semester, I haven't really thought about acting since then. Of course, the nice thing about a first person narrative is somebody's always talking. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so nicely. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I've always thought that every actor should take at least, I'm sorry, every actor, every writer should take at least one acting course. Or if you're, that's not able to you, go sign up with your community theater, uh, play somebody in the back with two lines. Uh, and what you, how has that helped to shape you in creating characters? I mean, I learned so much from Method. I mean, I, I did a semester at Strasburg and I did a summer at Stella Adler. I never really understood Adler as a technique. I think it's like very musical and I just never, I never got it. But Strasburg has like a lot of, it's method acting. So there's a lot of like, you pick a song for your character and you pick a feel, you pick a, there's all these different things that you choose. And I do that a lot. I will pick, you know, depending on where we are in the book, I'll pick like a theme song. And I listen to the song on repeat over and over and over again, as I write whatever, piece of the book I'm in, I use a lot of those qualities, um, a lot of those skills that I learned from acting, sort of the touch, um, the touchable qualities, like the things that as you're trying to build a character, you're like, what is this person feeling? And, and like, there's a lot of physicality to it. And I find that as a writer, I'm still doing that. If that makes sense. Yeah, too. I think we you were do? separated at birth. Oh my gosh, I love that. You do that too? Yeah, I've always got a theme song for a book that at the end of the year when Spotify shows me my playlist, there's always one that's like way above every other song on the list. Like, you listen to this nonstop. What's wrong with you? Do you switch the, the song? Do you switch the song as you go through the book? Yeah, I pick one per project. Yeah. And with the exception of the Banneker Bones trilogy, I was listening to Disc Wars from the Tron Legacy soundtrack uh, for like three years straight. <laughs> oh my gosh, we are. We are like the same in that way. That's, yeah. So what's the what was the theme song for uh, taking up space? Um, so I listened to a lot of Queen when I was writing Taking Up Space, um, and I like went back and forth through all of the the greatest hits really, um, and that was sort of a throwback too from when I wrote Braced because I listened to a lot of Queen when I wrote Braced. Um, I'm trying to think what else. Oh, I can't tell you the other one because it's too embarrassing. And I always listen to some S Club 7 because that really like channels me back to middle school. Do you know S Club 7? Sure. <laughs> S Club. <laughs> <laughs> you see, like, I put that on and then I, there's another song, but it's way too embarrassing. I just can't say it. I put that on and I'm like, okay, I'm a seventh grader again. It's like. <laughs> well, esteemed audience knows that at some point I have to ask because I ask everybody. Uh, Allison Gerber, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? No. Oh, hmm. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Um, I live in a really old house. 
So my house was built in like 110 years ago. And I, and we have a, we have a light in the dining room that sometimes it will just like the light bulb is fine. It's changed. There's nothing wrong with the electrical. It will just sometimes signal. And I'm really like, Mary's here. Like, I just know the woman who like was born and raised in this house. I just know like she's here. So yes, ghosts. Yes. Flying saucer. No, uh, no. Is that like a, a comforting presence when Mary comes around? Yeah, I feel like Mary really took care of this house. She really, like, even, like, she did all the right things. She always, like, reminds me to do the right thing. Like, you know, sometimes you want to, like, not hire the person to do the thing because it's, like, you'd rather just save the money. Mary's there to remind me to just do the thing. <laughs> it's like a piece of, this house is, like, a piece of history. It's a, um, and I'm, like, so I love it so much and I want to take care of it. And it's a bit like Mary's there to be, like, take care of the house. <laughs> <laughs> do the right thing <laughs> well thank you mary I, I hope she continues to uh to, to watch out for the house and uh, yeah i think so i think she will and if she has any ghost friends i hope that she doesn't invite them over just I hope she <laughs> no i've been building all the energy is positive and i'm not like i'm not like big on energy i mean i sound like i'm a different person than i am but i feel like she's a good ghost she's a happy ghost Ah, and then my final question uh, is always some variation. Uh, if you could go back to the start of your writing career or whenever it would have been useful to you and give yourself some advice that might have made easier your path to publication, might make easier the path of everybody listening to us, what would you go back and tell yourself? I saw a really interesting tweet today that I was thinking about. I, I forgot to retweet it and I, I'll never see it again, but it was an agent who said, I've sold um, I've sold books that have been on submission for a year and a half that haven't sold. I've sold like basically there's no like you just keep going. You just keep being persistent. If you're persistent and you try again and you try differently and you try better and you just if you want to publish a book, you'll publish a book. It's about persistence and dedication and drive and sort of like you're going to get knocked down we all get knocked down that's just part of the that's part of the nature of the published publishing in general and you don't just get knocked down at the beginning you get knocked down in the middle too and at the end like there's you're getting knocked down all the time sort of um and so you just have to be able to like i was i was built this way i mean i don't know how else to serve i'm like a fighter you could like run me over with a truck and i would be like I'm coming for you, books. <laughs> like, I don't, you, I mean, and that you can build that in all different kinds of ways. I mean, that's a real strength. And you surround yourself with people who are like, you've got this. Come on, we got you. And uh, people who are really positive, who are in your corner, who are fighting for you and proud of your work and know you can do it. And it makes you, you know, feel that you can keep going. But just to know that like that's part of what the that's a part of the process of writing is that it's hard. It's really hard. It's hard. The work is hard. The industry is hard. Um, it's not like you just, you know, get a book published and it's like smooth sailing and everything's great and you're like on a yacht. It's like nothing like that at all. You're never on a yacht. Um, and I think like if you can sort of if you if that's what you choose to if you want to do this that you can do it. Like it actually is, there's space for everybody's voice 
And I didn't know that that would be true. I didn't really believe that. I was like, but there's not space for my voice. There's space for everybody else's voice, but not mine. And like, now that I'm on the other side of that, I can see that that's actually, that's not true at all. Um, you just have to make that. You've just, in some ways you have to convince the industry. And in some ways you just have to figure out the right way in. Uh, and sometimes you don't get your way in because it's, I mean, I tried to publish many books before I published Braced and if they had published, it would have been horrible. Um, they just weren't right. They weren't, they weren't my debut. Um, they wouldn't have been the right book for lots of reasons. So I just hope that if you're writing and you want to be a published author that you just keep going um, because your, your voice matters and you're worthy and your story is important and, um, and don't give up. If you don't want, if you, if you want to give up, that's totally fine. I respect that. Actually, I, I, sometimes we have to know when you don't want to do it anymore and it's not making you happy, but if writing makes you happy and you're determined and you want to keep going, you will get there. I, um, I really believe that it's a, it's an industry of persistence. Allison, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, making time for me and for, for esteemed audience and for being an absolutely amazing guest. Thank you so much for having me. This is wonderful. I'm so glad I got a chance to get to know you. And um, and I'm going to be thinking about flying saucers, actually. Probably. Well, the way, uh, yeah. government announcements keep going, I think we're all going to be thinking about flying <laughs> saucers. <laughs> Where uh, can esteemed audience uh, find you online, follow you on social media, all that good stuff? Um, so I'm, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Allison Gerber, and my name is spelled A-L-Y-S-O-N. G-E-R-B-E-R, -E just like the baby food. So A-L-Y-S-O-N, Gerber like the baby food. Allison Gerber, um, no numbers or anything else. And then I'm allisongerber.com. So you can find all my books on my website. And esteemed audience, as always, for all the best interviews, everything that's good in this world, go to middlegradeninja.com, download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, and God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week.